1: This is episode 207, being recorded on Tuesday, February 11th, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail
0: Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Jason, as you well know, one of our favorite topics here on the show is the big move where brands are going direct-to-consumer, and of course, we spend a lot of time talking about digitally native vertical brands, also known as DNVBs. Today on the show, we are really excited to welcome Lawrence Ingrassia. Larry has been a business journalist at top publications, including The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and LA Times. Larry is the author of the book, Billion Dollar Brand Club, How Dollar Shave Club, Warby Parker, and Other Disruptors Are Remaking What We Buy. The book was just published in January, and we are really excited to have Larry on the show. Welcome, Larry. Thank you, guys. Uh, we are we are excited to have you, and uh,
1: the the topic of your book is is super relevant and pertinent to our audience. Um, so before we jump into it, can you uh, share with our audience just a little bit about your background and how um, you you know you sort of came up to the point where you wanted to write a book?
2: Yeah, you know, I I worked at newspapers for many years. I was a senior editor. Uh, really loved it. Uh, retired a a few years ago, and when I retired. I wanted to delve deeply into something that I thought was interesting. And I've been fascinated by the world of entrepreneurs and and startups. And I actually had a kernel of an idea when I retired. So and it goes back to 2011. And that was before most people actually had even thought of the idea of direct-to-consumer brands. And back then, uh, I heard about a company, uh, Dollar Shave Club. And it was actually before it had the name Dollar Shave Club. Uh, it was an idea of a friend of my daughter's. Uh, now, I had been a business journalist, as a, as you guys noted, uh, for a long time. They even had covered Gillette at one point. It is one of the most powerful brands, not just in the US, but the world. It has great products, it has great advertising, and it's maintained a 70% market share for decades. I, I think that's worth repeating because that's just Unheard of in any consumer product, 70% market share in the US for decades. And so I didn't tell Michael Dubin, who was the founder of Dollar Shave Club, but I thought to myself, this is the dumbest business idea I have ever heard. <laughs> You're going to compete with Gillette by selling razors and blades online? Like, really? So then, you know, kind of fast forward to 2016. I'm driving to work at 7 a.m. I'm listening to NPR, and there's a story about Unilever buying Dollar Shave Club for $1 billion. And after grabbing the steering wheel tightly to keep from swerving into the lane next to me, I said to myself out loud, he did it. Michael, expletive deleted, did it. And and I had two thoughts quickly. First was, oh my gosh, was I wrong? not just me, but lots of so-called smart people who scoffed at the idea, You know, venture capital investors who had turned him down, competitors, including Gillette, that had ignored and dismissed him. And second, and this is where really the idea kind of grew, was how did this happen? How did the impossible, or what most of us thought impossible, become possible? Because nobody thought that the razor business could be disrupted. In fact, after my book was published, I got a I got an email from uh, uh, an executive at a big consulting firm who does uh, consumer products. And he said, if somebody had told me that 10 years ago that the razor business is going to be disrupted, I told them that they were crazy. So it was the same reaction that I had. Um, And you know what? It was disrupted. Gillette's market share fell to a low 50% range within about four or five years. Just unbelievable. And and so as I started reporting, I quickly realized that the Dollar Shave Club story, while while amazing, was really part of a much bigger story. Uh, It was a story about uh, a revolution that has changed what we're buying and how we buy things. And, you know, it's not just razors. It's eyeglasses, mattresses, bras, contact lenses, sneakers, luggage, cosmetics, dog food, vitamins, hearing aids. You know, you name it and you can buy a new brand and often several new brands that have been launched online. And so that was kind of where I got going. I said, "Let me kind of find out about this world and and why this was happening."
0: Very cool. We're we're glad you uh, you wrote the book on it. So uh, uh, it's been great. So so you do spend a lot of time in the book on uh, Dollar Shave Club. What what do you think was the magic there? You know, they had the viral video, um, the subscription model. What what do you think was the lightning in the bottle that they captured?
2: Yeah. So, so let me, you know, kind of pan up to like 5,000 feet and then go back to Dollar Shave Club. So, um, uh, you know, a couple things that these companies had in common that I found early on. You know, first of all, the main formula for success was actually quite simple. Uh, these entrepreneurs and their young entrepreneurs, mostly in their 20s and 30s, uh, spotted a problem and figured out a way to fix it. Uh, but by offering a lower price or a better value or improving the customer experience or just eliminating the hassle. Uh, you know, these problems now may seem blindingly obvious, but the big companies had never fixed them. And the second thing that is really interesting about most of these companies is that the founders knew little or nothing about the products that they were introducing them when they actually started their business. And you think, well, how could that be? Well, actually, you know, kind of it turned out to be an advantage rather than a disadvantage. And the reason for that is that they were thinking outside the box, you know, kind of they weren't constrained by, oh, we can't do this or that or the other thing because, you know, that's not how the way things are done in our business. You know, conventional wisdom can be a real problem for for companies. So Michael Dubin was an out-of-work internet marketing guy who was looking for his next thing, but he thought razors were ridiculously expensive and frustrating to buy because they're often locked behind a glass case. So his solution, razors at half the price, ship right to your home with the monthly subscription. You know, and often it's not one thing. It's often several things that lead to the success. And you mentioned the video, which went viral, uh, which, which uh, you know, kind of our blades are blanking great Um uh, shot for about $5,000, one minute and 30 seconds. I've had marketing executives and marketing professors uh, tell me that they've watched it so many times that they can basically recite it by, by
1: line. Um, I've quoted a lot of it to him, which he finds really annoying. <laughs> to, my, to Michael, Yeah. I, every time I see him, my first sentence is I'm good at tennis. Yes, right.
2: <laughs> um And, you know, kind of but if you look at this, Warby Parker, too, you know, this was the pioneering online uh, eyeglass company that was started as a class project by four students who were getting an MBA degree at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton Business School. And, you know, kind of they figured, well, if it doesn't become a business, at least we'll get class credit for it. Um, uh, But they wondered, as many uh, uh, people probably have, why does a pair of glasses cost $700? So their solution was glasses for as little as $95 with five frames shipped to you at home. So you could try them on before buying them. Uh, Again, kind of in retrospect, a very easy solution and a simple solution to a problem that a lot of people had. But it was people outside the business that that thought of it. And then then you have the founders of all these mattress companies, uh, including Tuft & Needle, which actually was the first one. It was before Casper. Uh, These guys were software engineers who got tired of working for software companies. And one of them had bought a mattress. And you know what, as I'm sure both of you guys would agree, and everybody I talked to, buying a mattress, going into a mattress store is a truly miserable experience. You're stalked by a salesman, tries to steer you to the most expensive mattress. You lie down on it for 30 or 60 seconds. You get it home and realize you don't really like it. Your back is killing you. Uh, And so you call the store and you say, can I return it? And they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. 20% 20% restocking fee plus $100 shipping. And at that point, you can't, well, maybe I'll keep it. So, you know, kind of their idea was a foam bed in a box, reasonable price, free shipping. And if you don't like it, free return after 30 to 60 days if you don't like it. So, you know, kind of all these startups, the most successful ones, spotted a problem, saw a need, and came up with a way to, to fill it. And I think that's what that was the real. Uh, a genius of Dollar Shave Club. Uh, and then of course, they have to figure out a way to market it to get attention, which Michael Dubin did with his video. It helped in his case that you had a giant that was in Gillette that was uh, a bit complacent, even arrogant. In fact, one of the tidbits in my book is that uh, early on, one of uh, Dollar Shave Club's investors called Gillette and said, hey, would you guys be interested maybe in making an investment in Dollar Shave Club? And they were dismissed out of hand. It was like, nope, you know, didn't even take a meeting. Uh, well, that came back to, you know, kind of be, you know, kind of was they rude that day because four or five years later, Gillette did like what it had, nobody can remember it having done. It lowered its prices because it was losing so much market share. Um, and again, it's because Michael Dubin saw that they were vulnerable and then attacked it on on his terms rather than competing on Gillette's terms.
0: Cool. The um, I haven't seen a lot of people talk about the exit in detail. Were you able to get any details of you know why they sold when and was there a bidding war or, or anything around? You know, he had, talk,
2: he had talked to a few people, uh, but I think that uh, Unilever came up with you know kind of this outrageous number, and it was kind of like, yeah, right, I'll, I'll take it. Um, uh, you know, kind of. i wondered if they overpaid. I think they were buying you know a growing business. I think they were buying on an entrepreneur who might help them think about how um, e-commerce is changing the way that products are being sold. So there was a combination of those things.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, something like 6 to 12 months later, P&G had an activist in there really disrupting things because they didn't buy Dollar Shave Club. So it, it kind of made me feel like maybe, you know, they either totally missed the boat or they had kind of lowballed it and ended up not winning it. at
2: that, you know, at that point probably P&G couldn't have bought uh Dollar Shave Club for any trust purposes. They might have been able to invest in them, you know, kind of in the first year or two because it was so small, but, you know, kind of by the time Dollar Shave Club had you know, a uh, uh, 10% market share in, in volume, you know, kind of, or maybe even a little bit more, um, it, it might've been very hard for that to pass muster with uh, uh, antitrust regulators.
1: Yeah, um, and we uh, we may get an opportunity to dive a little deeper into the antitrust uh, issue because there's there's uh, been some recent developments there. Um, but one of the things I really enjoyed about the booklet is I, I sort of feel like um, it it would have been sufficient to just have like some great biographies of these D 2 C companies that have caught our attention and that we're all talking about. And, uh, and you, you certainly do have, um, some nice biographies of the, you know, the origin stories for some of these, these brands and, uh, and in, you know, most I would, as I was already familiar with, but for almost every one of them, you, you know, you uncovered some interesting tidbits or had some, some, uh, good background that was news to me. So it was, it was fun to read those biographies. And I particularly like you 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 sort of introduced a framework for these companies. Like you highlighted the fact that uh you know some of them really entered the market by by trying to have a better experience than their predecessor. So, you know, Dollar Shave Club being an easier way to get razors than uh you know go to the store. Right. Not and, just
2: price, yeah. Yeah, defeat
1: no. product jail. Like uh some of these like were about price, uh, you know, and um you know, finding finding uh, windows of opportunity. Uh, somewhere about like dramatically improving uh, uh the product from, from what was previously available. Um, and then somewhere about using data to uncover a, sort of an unmet need. Yeah, that's um,
2: that's a really good point. So so when I started looking at the book, I didn't want the book to be like uh one chapter after the next, kind of telling the story of this company, that company, the other company. I wanted to to thematically flow. And and uh you know, getting back to that moment when I was sitting in the car and said to myself, oh, maybe there's something here. And then kind of, why is this happening? You know, kind of, and why now? Um, and, And the answer I quickly learned was technology. Technology had leveled the playing field and made possible what had not been possible, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So if you go back to, I mean, all these problems that these entrepreneurs saw had long existed. I mean, mattress stores have been, you know, kind of ridiculous places for a long time. Gillette has long, you know, uh, added, you know, kind of little features and so that they could justify increasing the price. Um, But it was the barriers to entry were much, much higher 10 or 15 years ago, especially if you wanted to create a brand that was a national brand. So, you know, kind of 2005, even up to about 2010, you wanted to introduce a new brand, you know, kind of you have to go to a retail store. You have to say, Mr. Walmart or Ms. Walgreen, you know, can, will you carry my product? And they like, mm, why? I, I don't need to carry your product. First of all, I have limited shelf space. And second of all, I have all these other brands that are doing quite well. You know, kind of, it's a pretty cozy relationship. So the internet comes along, and uh, that means that, you know, kind of e-commerce allows companies to introduce products, introduce new brands in ways that would have been really difficult before. The internet has unlimited shelf space. <laughs> you know, kind of your website is your shelf space. And then second, okay, so you've got that shelf space, how do you get anybody to notice you? Again, go back to, you know, kind of 10 or 15 years ago and you would need a multimillion dollar advertising campaign, really, you know, kind of tens of millions of dollars advertising campaign on TV, you know, kind of radio, uh, newspapers if you wanted to get any attention. Gillette spends hundreds of millions of dollars a year. But all of a sudden, you know, kind of technology, first with Google, but then most importantly with social uh, media, uh, like Facebook, allows a, a company to spend near thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to target those customers who are most likely to buy your products. And because you have this relationship online and you're kind of selling all your uh, products online, you're learning a lot about your customers' behavior, and you can keep fine tuning the product, the message, whatever. Again, so and and the final uh, technology that really you know that, it, that leap forward that really made all this possible was in logistics. So it's hard to remember, but in the early days of e-commerce, you ordered something and you know you were happy to get it in a week or two, right? And thanks beca- thanks to to Amazon. Which pushed the envelope and forced everybody else. It got to the point where you could order something, something within a, a two days or even one day. Um, uh, and again, the convenience factor of getting something, going on and getting something, made possible this revolution is taking in front in, in front of our eyes. So you had you know kind of the technology changes and it's going to continue changing. Is is made you know these companies, these startups possible and enabled them to challenge much bigger, much more deep-pocketed companies uh, in ways that would have been unimaginable.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Um, what do you think about, so there's been a lot written, um, you know, I've written a couple books and I realized that a lot has happened since you probably put the book to bed. Yeah, but uh,
2: <laughs> Yeah, when you're, when you're writing something when it's live and it's actually kind of evolving, you know, kind of, it's really, you know, interesting, interesting challenge.
0: Yeah, so so a lot has been written. Uh, and I think Andy Dunn at Bonobos has said a lot around, you know, you can get these businesses up to a hundred, maybe two hundred million. And then the conventional wisdom has kind of fallen over that you need to open stores. So, so we've seen away has open stores. Uh sometimes they're called guide shops, but they're essentially stores to go experience. Warby Parker. Warby has, et cetera.
2: Uh, what, Third uh, Love has dabbled in, in it. Uh Tough the to, to Needle and Casper both uh have as well. Uh, yeah. And so when I started seriously working on the book two years ago, I think, you know, basically there was Warby Parker with stores and, uh, uh, you know, kind of one or two others, it was kind of really small. And as I got into the reporting and more opened it up, I said, you know what, I have to have to have a chapter on retail and where does retail fit in this? I mean, it was something that, you know, that, that clearly was becoming, uh, uh, a trend among some of these startups. <laughs> and for just the reasons that you say. So um, a couple things were happening. One, social media marketing was so successful that everybody started doing it. So it became a bit more expensive. Now, it's still one of the most effective ways to acquire customers. But it's, it's more expensive than, than it was in the past. So the cost of that is going up. Second, you have you know, kind of the, the type of people who are most likely to buy online and to respond to a social media ad. You know, you're getting to a saturation point. Now, that may be a little bit of an exaggeration, but a lot of the people who are most likely to do it have done it. And finally, then you get to the point that 80 to 90% of retail in this country is still done in physical stores. Uh, in some categories, it's even higher. Uh, Neil Blumenthal, one of the co-founders of Warby Parker, told me it's like 95% in eyeglasses. So there's no surprise that they were one of the first uh, startups to actually go to to physical retail. So the new thing that you hear a lot of is um, uh, multi-channel. That, you know, yes, you can build, you know, kind of a brand. It might be, depending on the product, it might be 20 million, it might be 50 million, it might be 100 million sales. But to scale it up, you're probably going to have to be uh, multi-channel. I think most of these brands still have more than 50% of their sales online. And over time, I think you know, the, the, the percentage overall of, of retail done online is going to continue to increase. But that's why these brands have moved there. Oh, and, and the final thing is that you had a lot of traditional retailers uh, having problems and going out of business. So guess what? Retail space became a lot cheaper. So uh, you know, a company could kind of test retail in a way that wasn't going to cost them an arm or a leg. They could see how it worked without really kind of going all in.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the the evolution of Facebook and that that you know emerged as a new tool that allowed more efficient marketing. That was one of the enablers for a lot of these companies. Um, but you you also covered a lot of other aspects of the sort of um, Product development through you know go to market ecosystem that that sort of uh, evolved to create this this opportunity. So you, yeah. you covered some of the the infrastructure, uh, as it were, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was the
2: things that people don't see very often. I you know as a business journalist, I got really fascinated by that stuff. Uh, you know, kind of the the company that you know kind of figured out that you know face could. Facebook could really be a way to reach, you know, target audiences. Kind of AmPush, uh, based in San Francisco, found by, you know, kind of three uh, college friends, roommates who went to Wall Street and got bored on doing Wall Street and said, "Hey, let's start a company." And they figured that out. You know, kind of done very well. Um, uh, and then there's, you know, the logistics companies. You know, uh, which I found extraordinarily fascinating. Going into a modern warehouse, and it's not like what you would have seen five or ten years ago. Uh, certainly not ten years ago, uh, where you know kind of a lot of for, forklifts and you know people carrying things around and racing around I mean there are a lot of they 're automated to, to a large extent. there are a lot of robots there are people there, and they kind of tend to do the things that robots aren 't yet good at. Uh, but the amount of innovation that 's going on there to make that product that you click on and then get it within twenty four to forty eight hours is amazing it 's yeah. kind of cool it 's actually kind of cool.
1: Oh, for sure. And so you you had some interesting stories in there. So like one of the companies you profiled in that ecosystem, Quiet Logistics, um, I, I was familiar with them, but I, I didn't really know the backstory. They were a early adopter of these first robots for automating warehouses. And the, the robot they adopted was uh, this Kiva Systems robot. Yep. Um, and then you tell the story of how they were subsequently... Kiva was
2: so, acquired. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so this is, was, I love that story. Kiva was acquired by Amazon. And Amazon, you know, kind of not long after acquiring Kiva, said to the people that Kiva had been selling to, it's like, basically, we're not going to support, we're not going to, you know, after a few years, we're going to stop, um, uh, you know, kind of servicing the robots that you have. And these guys at Quiet Logistics, who had built a nice business, who had spotted the e commerce uh, revolution coming, and built a business totally on having an automated warehouse. They'd been in the warehouse business for years and had sold a, another warehouse company they had built up uh, a decade earlier. But they say, "Hey, this is a new opportunity." They're like, "What you're you're not going to service the robots anymore? What are we going to do?" You know, kind of that's our whole business model. Uh, and so they had the idea, "Why don't we build our own robots?" And so they went about kind of hiring Engineers and hiring robotics experts, so they built their own robots, and lo and behold, that business is so successful that they've uh, spun it off and it's now selling robots to other warehouse companies and to ups and you know, all over the world
1: yeah that uh, that was funny and, I, and I'm trying to remember, Scott, were you an early investor in Kiva?
0: Uh thanks Thank, thanks for mentioning that Jason. I had the opportunity and at that point it was just a random pitch and it was described as ant algorithms in a warehouse full of robots and it didn't make sense to me but I was wrong.
1: Uh nah I'm, te- I'm teasing. Uh, uh you you at least were on the list of people they called. Um so that was a great story Larry. Another one that that I think is in some ways one of the most important trends in the whole book is um you described a number of entrepreneurs that that really leverage data that previously probably didn't exist to help define the products that they offer so i'm thinking like Salon or Mohawk or or uh, anchor could you talk a little bit about one of those
2: yeah so uh i think this is one of the things wh- when you have a disadvantage when you're competing against a bigger uh a rival um you need to have some other advantage. You need to play by different rules. And actually, you know, kind of, do you guys remember uh, the the book and then the movie Moneyball by Michael Lewis? For sure. So Moneyball basically was uh, about how a small market baseball team, the Oakland Athletics, couldn't compete with big market teams like the Yankees, who are rich and co- could, you know, kind of pay for more talent, so they had to figure out how are we going to compete, and they came up with the idea of data analytics to find players who were undervalued. And within a few years after embracing data analytics, they became highly competitive, and and you know, kind of they were you know, going toe to toe with the Yankees in many ways. So. To me, what is happening in retail, in the creation of brands, is kind of the money ball moment. These companies, uh, in addition to seeing a problem and looking for a way to fix it, also recognize that you could use data, technology broadly, but also data, to uh, spot opportunities, to improve your products, to connect with your customers. So a lot of people call it, this is direct-to-consumer businesses. I also say it's connect-to-consumer businesses. So early on, before they get big enough that they decide they need to offer, you know, kind of have have retail stores as well. These companies are doing all their business with people online. People are coming to the website. They know everything. Where did you come from? How much time did you spend on the website? What are you looking at? Uh, What are you ordering? How many times do you come back before you order? I mean, they, they, they can just gather a lot of data to learn about their customers and to improve their products. In some cases, one of the, the uh, uh, things that some of these brands are doing is having more customized products, and that's where Isalon has uh, come on. Isalon offers customized hair coloring that is, you know, just about as good as salon, but a lot more expensive, but better than the off-the-shelf hair coloring that you would get from one of the big name brands. And how does it do this? It's gathering data all the time from its users has a questionnaire it's using ai to analyze that data when we mix this for these for for the woman who answers the questionnaire this way this is what she likes sometimes we'll tweak it and give her slightly different than what she thinks that she wants because our experience has shown over hundreds of thousands millions of people answering the questions kind of this is what is going to work best and so their product is like 20 or 25 bucks, depending on what kind of subscription you have. And, you know, it's a lot less than you might spend at a a, a hair salon. Uh, and, it's, and it's a very good product. Again, that would not be possible without being able to collect the data and, you know, kind of fine tune. It's a product, but also it's the marketing, it's the pitch, kind of to see somebody comes to your website, you know, kind of how long you're going to stay there. Every, you know, kind of, incremental improvement each step along the way means that you're going to have more customers, you have more customers stay with you. So initially they started, I think they told me like you know 50% of their customers were were coming back because they were still trying to figure out the formulation. And now 70% come back after the first purchase. They get people past their third purchase, they know they're going to have until eight purchases. If they get them past their eight purchases, they're going to have them like just about forever. Uh, Again, and they know this, because they're measuring every bit of data.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the examples in the book that really struck me was uh, when a woman asked for the lightest possible blonde, they know that she actually doesn't want the lightest possible blonde and that she maybe wants something with a, a slight bit of blue tint in it.
2: Yes, because, because they know from people who've gotten the lightest possible, Dom, who, who fit the profile that she fits, that they have a lower kind of second coming back conversion rate than they do when they kind of tweak it a little bit. It's you know kind of it, it really is uh, a type of rocket science put into a computer for retail purposes.
1: Yeah, but I, I like that metaphor. So you could almost think of um, sort of anchor money ball uh, Belkin, right? Like the the yes. you know right. the traditional accessory providers.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the challenges I think for for some of the um, uh, startups is that you know. What happens when the Yankees starting you start using data analytics, right? They've got money and data analytics. <laughs> so, so now you know, having said that, I think the Oakland A's are year in, year out, fielding better teams than they ever did before data analytics came along. So, so even though it may be harder now that everybody's using the same tactics, and I think a lot of the big companies are starting to learn. Some of them are buying uh, some of these companies, uh, some of them are buying expertise. Uh, so, so that's going to make it a bit more challenging for, for companies, but still, you know, I think that there's a lot of potential, uh, because you have the technology out there that makes it easy to introduce a brand.
1: Yeah. And you know what, you know, uh, following that metaphor, maybe just one step further, I, I, that's a great point you make that, um, when the Oakland A's are the only ones using the money ball system, they were, they were suddenly identifying valuable players that other teams didn't want because they didn't know they were valuable. Right. So they had this competitive advantage. But once the whole world adopted this, uh, this quantum metric, uh, system, suddenly everyone knew those value. And so it was, it was harder to gain an advantage from that. And in in some ways it feels like. D to C is playing out very similar. When you were the only ones leveraging this, like targeted audiences on Facebook, you had this great competitive advantage. But now that everyone's using it, they've bit, you know bid up the prices, and it's it's less of an advantage than it it was for that first mover. Right,
2: right. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that.
0: Cool. One um one thing I wanted to talk about is so away has been interesting, and and this probably happened. Post publication of the book, uh, you know, so they've they've had uh, one thing that's interesting is so so Amazon has kind of cloned their model. Um, so there's an Amazon basic suitcase. Target just announced their own um, line of suitcases that look very awayish. Um, and then they had their own kind of implosion with the CEO, you know, sending some unsavory Slack messages internally, uh, kind of kicking herself upstairs and then re-kicking herself back downstairs. What what do you make of the the tumultuous times there?
2: yeah so I think implosion is probably too too strong a word um, uh, clearly uh, e- embarrassing for the CEO uh, to be berating her employees uh, the way that she did in a very demeaning way and I think that she has said she's embarrassed but you know one thing I would point out these are startups most of these people have not run companies and often you have you know entrepreneurs who aren't great managers, uh, you know, witness Steve jobs at Apple, right. Or Elon Musk at Tesla. I mean, both of these executives were incredibly, incredibly difficult to work with. And, and the second thing I would say is that, um, you know, especially when you're in the, the mode that away is in, you know, competing, first of all, with other startups, which it ended up as the leading, uh, uh, new luggage company, and now competing against other existing players trying to get into its space and copy what it's doing, you know, it's a life or death situation uh, for a company. And so, you know, sometimes emotions boil over. I think the big question there is, will that bad publicity affect A Away's image overall? And, if, you know, you go on uh, uh uh, social media and you see people saying oh i'm never going to buy it anymore and oh i wish i hadn't bought it and you know what a week later those same people are outraged by something else um so i i'm not sure i mean i think time will tell how much it's going to affect them but you know they have a good product at a at a good price it's a value price right it's not the most expensive it is not the best product but it is you know a good product at a good price and i think it could end up being one of the winners only time will tell but i think it could be
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, another one, uh, you know, and I, I feel like demonstrating how liquid all this is like, obviously you, you, uh, uh, you know, the, you mentioned Dar shave club was sort of one of your, your first interests in this space and they're well covered in the book. Um, and you, you alluded earlier to Gillette's prodigious market share. Um, so like the, the interesting news from last week and this week is last week, the FTC, um, filed a complaint and said that they were actually going to oppose Harry's um, acquisition by Edgewell because they felt like number two market share.
2: Which owns Schick.
1: Yeah, exactly. So so Schick, number two, acquiring Harry's, which uh, some people think is number four behind Dollar Shave Club. I actually have some data that looks like Harry's may have a bigger market share today than Dollar Shave Club. Um, So column three or four. Uh, number two buys number three or four, and uh, the FTC was concerned that that would dramatically erode price competition. So they they uh, blocked the merger, and and then this week Edgewell announced that they weren't going to fight it. So yes, they were essentially right. to the
2: consternation of of Harry's. Well, exactly. the, you know, look, I'm, I'm not sure what the most recent data is. The data that I got from an independent uh, uh, source uh, that tracks sales said that Dollar Shave Club uh, sales and market share was quite a bit bigger than Harry's, but. Separate from that, you know, I think it was an interesting decision. I mean, I, a little bit of a puzzling decision, you know, kind of the FTC is, is letting um, uh, Sprint and T-Mobile merge, and but not Harry's and um, uh, Schick or Edgewell uh, merge. You know, the barriers to entry in mobile communication is much higher than the barriers to entry in, in Razors. And, and actually, one of the things I, I think, you know, getting back to the, the whole point about um, how easy it is to introduce a new brand. I mean, let's say that Harry's, you know, starts raising its prices and starts doing business more like Chick and Gillette had long done it, that cozy relationship. Um, to me, that would prove that, you know, kind of two things would happen because of the way that the world has changed. One, Sh- it would help Dollar Shave Club being in there as, as uh, you know, kind of offering this alternative view of the world. And second, it's quite possible that another brand would come in and say, Hey, you know, kind of these guys, you know, kind of uh, are, are leaving their customers behind. They're not being true to what they were. And obviously there is a, a market for what they were doing. Um, uh, and, and I think that's one of the, you know, kind of long-term, you know, getting back to the Moneyball issue, kind of one of the long-term benefits of what's happened is that we as consumers have more choice and, Likely will have more choice in most consumer products going forward because it is so easy to introduce a new brand. There's been a democratization, which leads kind of to fragmentation. I don't think we'll ever see a brand that, you know, kind of like Gillette has 70% market share in the future, but that's good. You know, that's not bad. I, you know, I, kind of finally, I think part of the reason that, that Edgewell Schick backed out was it paid. it. I thought the price that it offered was was quite a rich price. It was like one point three billion. It was even more than Unilever paid for Dollar Shave Club. Um, uh, so I thought that was an awfully rich price, and maybe they kind of at the end got cold feet and said, "Oh, maybe we're paying too much for it." You know, kind of let's yeah. let's let that. Go. The
1: I think the investors must have agreed with you because I feel like Edgewell's stock is up since the the, the merger was called off. Right. I, right. Personally, long term,
2: long term, Schick Edgewell is going to have to figure out how to better service its customers, right? Because it was distant, 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 you know, kind of number two to uh, Gillette forever. And it had combined, combined Harry's and, and Dollar Shave Club, I think, had more market share than than Schick. So that says something about the way they were doing business before and the way they need to think about doing business going ahead.
1: Oh, for sure. And like, I mean, two things. Uh, A, like, it's going to be interesting to watch shit because, you know, uh, in many respects, when they announced this merger, they said, and we're going to put the Harry's guys in charge of our strategic plan going forward. So they sort of announced to the world that we don't have any good ideas and we're trusting them to take the brand forward. <laughs> and so now what, what do you do? When you don't have those guys,
2: right? I mean, you know, you maybe you try to hire that talent, but sometimes that entrepreneurial talent and that just kind of feel for what the customer wants is not so easy to duplicate in focus groups and such.
1: No, but uh, so I'll admit, very personally, uh, selfishly, I'm disappointed that they're not going to litigate with the FTC because, per your point, um, in the FTC's complaint, they they made a lot of interesting claims, and um, one of the claims was that. Uh, Harry's was able to capture significant market share and become a relevant player, but that they sucked up all the opportunity to do that and that it would be much more difficult for anyone to follow in Harry's footsteps and therefore it was important not to allow this merger. And like, well, as we discussed already, in some ways it probably is harder to be the third or fourth mover. In other ways, like the, the friction is considerably less like, and it's hard to imagine that Amazon couldn't be a, a significant player or target couldn't invent a, a razor brand <laughs> a significant player. So
2: well, um, Amazon, as you noted earlier, I think you mentioned it with regard. Yeah, they're to They're
1: already in the space
2: in, in the space, but they have, there are uh, at least 200 new brands that Amazon has introduced over the last few years. And I, and I mentioned this in my book that are, they have Amazon Basics brands, but this is separate from that. These are brands that you don't know are necessarily Amazon brands unless you really drill down. They actually have uh, a shoe brand called, I think it's called Collective 206, kind of a crazy name for a shoe brand. But anyway, um, uh, they introduced a knockoff of Allbirds' uh, wool runner shoes recently. And Allbirds took a shot at them and say, oh, your stuff is not uh, sustainable um, uh, materials and, but in some ways, Walmart is—I mean, excuse me—Amazon is validating uh, what Allbirds is doing, uh, and in some ways, it's giving a threat. So you're going to have all sorts. I mean, the opportunity to introduce new products, new brands is is you know kind of higher than than ever before. And again, getting back to my point, if Harry's changed the way it did business so that it charged higher prices and you know kind of acted more like chick that would create an opportunity for somebody else in the marketplace. I truly believe that.
0: Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see, um, you know, if, if more of this gets blocked and what's going to happen. One one other topic I wanted to just touch on quickly that happened kind of post the book is the Casper IPO. So, you know, I, I think Casper raised money um, as a private company at around one to 1.2 billion. Um, and then they really struggled pricing the IPO. They kind of, we're talking about a 15 to 17 range and end up pricing it at a 12. It's trading off of that. Um, and it's interesting because I've seen a lot of people argue that these brands should get kind of one times revenue. Uh, and then other folks have argued that a lot of these brands, uh, you know, because they're more efficient, they should get two, three, four times Uh, So this one ended up kind of going right in. I think they're trailing twelve months revenue are about four hundred million, and now their market cap is right around four hundred million. So they or five hundred
2: or something like that, but pretty close to it.
0: Yeah, they pretty quickly zeroed in on that one times. Um, Do you think that's going to throw kind of a wet blanket on things, or do you think so that that it won't?
2: Yes, but with a caveat. So uh, let's look at the mattress space overall and how disrupted that has has been. So if you go back five years, the mattress business, retail mattress business in the U.S. is about $15 or $16 billion a year. If you go back five years, about $50 million was done direct to consumer, the bed in the box brands. Last year, it was $2 billion. And if the barriers to entry fell in a lot of categories, the barriers to entry in the mattress category collapsed because it's so easy to make a mattress and sell a mattress. You get somebody to sell you foam, you know, you get somebody to, to sew the, the bits together, the top together, and then you kind of get a machine that crams it down and puts it in a box and send it. You had dozens, dozens. I've actually heard hundreds, but you have know, dozens of dozens, serious, serious players. And I think that they're probably going to be, you know, kind of maybe a half dozen that that emerge. Um, <clears throat> so in this, in this, you know, kind of fiercely competitive, free-for-all, bare-knuckles, free-for-all, the way I described it in the book, Casper raises a lot of money and decides that it has to spend a lot of money to try to um, knock the others out of the box kind of, uh, and become the leading. And and I think that they made a strategic mistake. I think they spent so much that it validated the whole category, right? So when you went and searched for mattresses online, you found Casper, but you also found Tuft & Needle and... Um purple and uh others. And the second thing, I think that they thought maybe that you know it was like a network effect. You know, we spend more, it'll kind of get others, you know, kind of have to drop out. And it it hasn't, you know, kind of lo- those others have thrived. So have you guys heard much about purple innovation? Uh yeah. Okay. So purple is a public company. It its stock is traded. Mm-hmm. Uh it it came, it, it actually didn't start selling mattresses until like 2016. Its stock has doubled in the past year. Its market cap is now 700, 800 million. I think its, its sales are four to 500, roughly the same as, as Casper. And Tuft & Needle, uh, which was sold about a year and a half ago to Serta Simmons for four to $500 million, was started, as I mentioned, by these kind of two software engineers who just decided they wanted to make a product. They raised virtually no money. They had no venture capital market. They had to be profitable from the start. And they were. And when they sold the company, they each, together they had 90% of the company. So, you know, kind of both of them did very, very well. Um, so I think that Casper, you know, kind of rather than being a, a poster child for all DTC companies, is more of a poster child for kind of poor man, a poorly managed DC, DTC company. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're going to see, time will tell. But when you have profitable companies in that space and they're unprofitable, then, you know, kind of it says that somebody's doing something right compared with them.
1: Yeah, uh, it's it's uh, funny. So a number of these guys have been on the podcast. So uh, Joe Megabo, who's the CEO of Purple, has been on and uh, and J.T. Marino has been on. And one of the cool stories J.T. told us was um, that, yeah, you know, that, that, you know, he mentioned that he hadn't raised any money. That, you know, some of these these venture funds that were starting to emerge specializing in D 2 C all wanted to invest and they didn't take the money. Um, and that his his version of the story was Casper was specifically created as a um, alternative to Tuft & Needle uh, that could be venture funded.
2: Right. Right. You yeah, know, I, I, I talked to him, too, uh, uh, as you know, in, yeah. in the book. And, and he told me that same thing. Uh, but he was, you know, can I, again, they were, high, they had to be very disciplined, right? Because of the, the way they spent money. Yeah, they no, I, I really targeted. admire that. And I, I think that, that Casper was undisciplined. Now, you know, the final thing I would say about it is that um, you've you ever heard of a company called Tesla?
1: <laughs> so uh, a year Scott ago, single handedly is keeping them afloat. So
2: So a year ago, Tesla was like, Almost given up for dead, right? Oh, it can't get the production right. You know, kind of they have they can't get you know kind of mass production of cars right. It's you know kind of he's running out of cash. You know, he's got so much debt, and, and now its stock is at an all time high, but, and and they're making money. And why? Because they got, they fixed their fundamental problem, which was you know they had a great brand name and a great product, but they were kind of highly inefficient in the way they made it. But they appear to have gotten that under control. Casper has still has a, a a great branding. I don't know if they can pull off a Tesla, but you know, sometimes the the rigor and the discipline imposed on you by public markets can focus the mind and make you be a lot more efficient than you were. I mean we'll see, but I wouldn't count them out quite yet.
1: No, fair. I think that's that's certainly fair. Um so uh, you you had this front row seat to all of uh, the, these interesting evolutions. Obviously, some, you know most of them are still sort of playing out. Like if uh, if you had to put your prognostication hat on, like how is all this going to play out? Like, is are these companies a blip on the radar, and Gillette and P and G are going to keep on ticking for, for another hundred years, or or you know, like are we seeing the start of a great, systematic great change?
2: Great question. So I think that there will be billion dollar brands created uh that have you know market cap or kind of they go public and there will be billion dollar brands i think warby parker probably wants to go public you know kind of i i, I don't know that they're making money but i think they're a lot closer to it than for example casper um uh, there will be other brands that will be um uh you know kind of modestly successful uh and then there'll be other brands that will be niche brands that will be successful in niches have you guys ever heard of a company called Lensable? this is one of my favorite ones. So, so um, uh, if you have a, a pair of eyeglass frames that you really like, maybe you bought a couple, a pair of designer frames a couple years ago and you need a new prescription and you kind of go back to the um, uh, optician and you say, Hey, can, you know, can I, I got a new prescription, just put new lenses in my frames. They look at you like, you're crazy. I, no, no, we want to sell you another pair of frames. Uh, this company, you send them the frames and they put in your new prescription. They send it back to you. So I think that there are going to be a lot of uh, niche players like this, and then there are going to be companies that fail uh, in in the in the luggage space. You know, kind of Away emerged as the leader among the startups, and there were a couple of companies, uh, Raiden and Blue Smart, that ended up going out of business. Um, so you're going to have a, a, a you know kind of a whole array of this. But I think the the ability to uh, you know getting back to what we've been talking about earlier, the ability to introduce brands means that you know kind of things have changed forever just like moneyball started with baseball and now data analytics is used in every sport um, uh, so you know kind of big companies will fight back none of those companies are going to disappear but if it, unless they figure out a way to connect to consumer better they're going to have lower market shares and you know again i don't think that's a bad thing I actually, you know maybe as an investor in those companies that's a bad thing but for consumers that's a good thing because in the end More choice is better. It keeps the big companies honest. It makes them. I mean, like Gillette lowering its prices by an average of twelve to fifteen percent a couple years ago. I mean, unheard of. That never would have happened without Dollar Shave Club and Harry's coming along. See, so you know, kind of, we're in the early stages of this revolution, and I think the revolution, like all revolutions, you're not exactly sure where it's going to end up, but. You are pretty sure that it's not. It's going to look quite a bit different than where we started.
1: Yeah. No. I I would totally agree with that, and I, I feel like we're we're lucky to be uh, uh, sort of in the in the front row at a time when we are going through this revolution because it's 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 not the status quo. Yeah. Very fun. Um, to,
2: very fun to watch.
1: Yeah. For sure. Uh, And uh, so until you write the sequel, um, that's going to be a great place for us to leave it tonight because we've uh, once again used up all our allotted time. Uh, But in the event that listeners have questions or want to continue the dialogue, uh, we always encourage you to jump on Twitter and send us a note or leave us a message on our our Facebook page. I'll be sure to put a link to Larry's book um, in the show notes so that uh, listeners can find that without uh, uh, doing yeah, anything send, dangerous while driving send me an
2: email too by my, my my email address is on my wedge page webpage, which is www so
1: i will i will put that in the show notes uh larry thanks very much for being on the show tonight we really enjoyed our conversation guys
2: jason scott very fun thank you so much for having me
0: thanks larry we appreciate you taking time to fill us in on your book and hope uh, everyone orders a copy asap and until next time